Well, we are in First uh, Thessalonians three, uh, verses one through ten today, but with a real focus, especially on verses uh, like three through probably three, four, and five. Uh, we want to think a little bit about a theology of trouble. Theology of trouble. There's a theology for everything, no matter what it is in life. There's a theology about it because what is theology? It's the study of God. Uh, and so uh, money, there's a theology of money, uh, sex, there's a theology of sex, uh, relationships, there's a theology of relationships, so on and so forth. Right. So we know in this world we have a lot of trouble. And if we're believers, if we're Christians, there's a potential for very severe trouble and hardship. Uh, and so there is a theology of trouble. Uh, and Paul was very concerned uh, very concerned about uh, these uh, Thessalonian believers because they were new. Remember, he'd only been with them for a few months uh, and he was driven out uh, by a mob of wicked, evil men who wanted his life. Uh, so he and Timothy and Silas had to flee down to Athens. Uh, and Paul was very concerned about these new believers. And so uh, he sent Timothy back. Uh, to Thessaloniki or Thessalonica, uh, and he sent Silas uh, somewhere else. I think he sent Silas to Macedonia. I can't remember, but he sent the two younger guys uh, to different places. He sent Timothy back to check on them uh, because he was worried, and then he did get uh, a good report. Think about the last time, uh, and notice I've mentioned recently that I've changed the way I do the outline. I like I'm going to start putting a lot of open-ended questions on there for you to use at CPR, uh, for you to use during the week, uh, for your own devotions as you go back over uh, the material in the scripture covered. Uh, And so think about the last time that you endured a trial. Maybe you're going through a trial right now or hardship. Uh, In the context of this passage is specifically being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Uh, I'm not sure how many of us have ever experienced that, but uh, we do experience trials and tribulations and hardships in this world. Uh, and sometimes because of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, but think about the last trial you endured. How did you respond to it? You know, what were your thoughts and your actions and and what part of your response to that hardship do you think was pleasing to God? And what part of it do you think was not pleasing to God? Uh, And what scripture did you turn to for guidance and strength uh, in that uh, hardship or that trial? Those are the kinds of things uh, that Paul is thinking about uh, as he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, Because sometimes when we face troubles or trials, it can be a temptation to our faith. That was his concern with them. He didn't want. The difficult circumstances they were going through to turn them away from Christ. Uh, Sometimes we can be sailing along in our walk with the Lord. And then when that walk is tested by difficulty, we start to waver uh, and we start to have doubts and questions. Sometimes we might ask questions like this. We might be tempted to think things like this when we're going through a difficult time. Obviously, God is not at work. He can't possibly be part of this. It's just too much of a hard thing. It's just too much of a terrible thing. Or we may be tempted to think things just aren't working out for me. If things were working out for me by the hand of the Lord, then I wouldn't be having these troubles. 
wouldn't be having these problems. Or we might be tempted to think God is displeased with me. God's not happy with me. Uh, I've been disobedient to the Lord. And so God's really out to get me. He's trying to punish me uh, for what I've done. Or we may be tempted to say this isn't fair. Uh, I've done everything I'm supposed to do in my relationship with God. And yet things are still so hard. Uh, This just isn't fair. Or here's a good one. If God really loved me, then this thing wouldn't be happening to me. Uh, That's you guys are looking at me like like I'm talking specifically about you. Well, maybe I am. I'll try to look. These these are are real questions, though, right? We ask ourselves these things. We're tempted about these things. It's not just us. These have been common questions from the beginning. Uh, When you think about in all the scripture I'm going to mention, it may not be on the screen, but I'm pretty sure I've put everything on the outline somewhere. So you have some homework to do. Yay for homework. Okay. That's why people stopped coming to my classes during the midweek because I had homework. So they stopped coming. So. All right. In John chapter nine, way back in ancient times in Israel, there was a situation where the disciples were walking along with Jesus uh, and they saw someone, they saw a man who had been born blind. He'd been blind his whole life. And so what did they ask Jesus? Remember, they said, Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin because he was born blind? We know that somebody sinned or else he wouldn't be blind. In other words, what did this man do to make God angry that God struck him with blindness? See how they were equating their heart, the hardship, they were equating the trial with God's displeasure. We do the same thing. Think about Job. Job had some friends that came to him. Remember when Job was going through all of his horrible trials and his well-meaning friends, they were trying to help. Uh, have you ever had a well-meaning friend who was trying to help and you were thought to yourself, I just wish he would quit talking. That would be the biggest help. Uh, or maybe you're the friend. <laughs> sometimes we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Right. And sometimes it might be best just to put our arm around the person uh, and pray with them rather than trying to solve their problem. But one of Job's friends, his name was Eliphaz, and he came to Job and he counseled Job. Uh, and his counsel to Job was that uh, innocent people do not suffer, Job. So you're not innocent because you're suffering. So, Job, let's think about this. Let's try to figure out what you did to tick God off. That's why this is happening to you. Job chapter five, verses six and seven. Eliphaz says to Job, affliction doesn't just come up from the dust. Affliction doesn't just sprout up from the ground. For man is born for trouble. Just as sparks fly up from fire, so man is born for trouble. This didn't just happen, Job. You must have done something. But Eliphaz, we know later as we read through the account, he was very ignorant of the scene in heaven that had produced Job's sufferings. Back in chapter one, we were told that Satan went to the Lord and said, let me get my hands on Job. He's only obeying you, God, or actually, I believe he was talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. He's only obeying you. Because you've made his life so easy and so good. The second you take away all your blessings, he's going to curse you. So Satan had to go to the Lord to get permission to go after Job. So what does that tell us about suffering? 
that all suffering is under the divine sovereign hand of God. As difficult as that may be for us to grasp, it is not unloving of God to allow us to go through hardships and trials. Sometimes we think of God that way. Eliphaz was looking only at what Paul called in Corinthians the temporal things, the things which are seen. Eliphaz was not looking at the unseen eternal things. Second Corinthians four. But Job had more of an eternal perspective of his problems than his friends did. Because Job says this in chapter five, verse eight. He says in response to Eliphaz's horrible counsel. I think Eliphaz was well-meaning. He cared about Job. It's just he was sincere, but we know he was sincerely wrong. Uh, He was misinterpreting the situation. Job says in chapter five, verse eight, as for me, Eliphaz, I will seek God and I will place my cause before God. Uh, Job understood uh, that his trials, for some mysterious reason, unbeknownst to him, were being allowed by God. And, and sometimes that's another reason we may struggle under God's hand of trial is because he doesn't give us all the answers. He doesn't give us all the whys. He doesn't give us all the reasons that we have to endure a season of trial or hardship or suffering. Uh, and we want those answers. Right. And if we're not careful, our heart can get to the place where we're actually demanding God give us the reasons why uh, or we draw our own conclusions. Jesus also took an eternal heavenly perspective about suffering and trials and troubles, because when his disciples asked him in John nine about this man's sin or his parents sin for the blindness. Remember Jesus's answer there. This this is marvelous. And if I'm losing you, if you're dozing off, if you're checking out, wait until we mention this and then I'll release you to check out. Okay. In John nine, Jesus said to them. It was neither this man's sin or his parents' sin that was the reason he was born blind. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Wow. I allowed this man to be born blind so that I could do an undeniable work in his life. That's interesting. I know it doesn't compute. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't get it. Uh, I don't completely get it either. It's very mysterious. It's very omniscient. It's very omnipotent. God's plan, God's purpose, God's use of trials and hardships and suffering to complete his work. Because in our minds, we don't equate hardship and suffering with the love of God or with the will of God. We have to do we try to do everything we possibly can to escape suffering. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to avoid suffering. We don't invite it. We don't elicit it. We don't promote it. But that's different than thinking we don't deserve it or that it's useless or that it's meaningless. The Apostle Paul also understood that there was great value in suffering and trouble if it is accepted and viewed through a spiritual lens. Because he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 16 and following, we won't read the whole thing. But he said, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outer man may be decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now listen to what he says. For momentary light affliction 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. When he says momentary light affliction, he's not saying, oh, my afflictions are easy. They're not that difficult. He had just gone through a whole list of horrible things, beaten, put in prison, starved, didn't even have clothing. And then he says those things were momentary and light. He wasn't minimizing his suffering. He wasn't making light of it. He was saying, when I think about what I have endured compared to what is waiting for me in eternity, this is nothing. This is nothing. What I have to endure sometimes on planet Earth, if I just stop and try to get a glimpse of eternity, then I consider what I'm going through to be just nothing. Just a blip. And he says, that strengthens me. He uses the word produce. That mindset produces an eternal weight of glory far beyond anything we can compare it to. So translation, troubles must be kept in an eternal perspective in order to have value, in order to produce God's work in the believer's life. Why is this important to the Apostle Paul that the Thessalonians grasp this? Why does he want us to grasp this concept? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 with me, he gives us one, at least one answer. There are other answers why this is important to him. But here's one answer. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You can follow along on the outline as well. That's uh, letter C at the bottom of page one of your outline. Don't you love it when the teacher gives you homework, but then he gives you the answers to the homework before you even leave? So that's what I'm going to do. So if you're alert, you can write it down and then you won't really have any homework, except to rejoice and be full of joy. That's easy. First Corinthians 1013 says this. There is no temptation. And that word can also be the word testing. It's the same word. There's no temptation that you are facing Except what is common to the human condition that's meant to encourage us. Because sometimes during suffering and trials, we're tempted to say, woe is me. I'm the only one. No one understands. Affliction many times isolates us. It makes us feel alone. And he's saying the things that we endure are common to the human experience. So don't feel that way. He says, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will with the temptation provide a way for you to escape that temptation so that you can bear up under it. Now, this is interesting because in our normal interpretation, I found that most people read this verse and they think, oh, God will provide a way for me to escape the hardship that I'm enduring. If I just pray, that is not now listen you'll hear the air go out of the room that is not what he's saying he is not saying that god will provide a way for us to escape our trials did you hear that rushing wind it just went out the back door well what is he saying then what is he saying listen closely First Corinthians 10:13 is most often interpreted to mean that God will provide a way to escape hardship when we're facing it, but that's not what Paul is saying. What will God provide escape from? God will provide a way to escape the temptation we face in our troubles and trials. And what is the temptation that we face when we're in the midst of trials and suffering? 
Very often when we face trials, hardships and sufferings, we are tempted to disobey and doubt God in our response to that hardship. Hmm. Which interpretation do you like better? I know I like the first interpretation better. I liked it better when I thought if I just pray, God will get rid of the hardship. Now, sometimes he will. I'm not saying he won't. Uh, But we know that other times Paul prayed again and again and again. And God said, no, I'm not taking it away. I'm not going to take your trial away. But I will give you grace to endure it. God provides a way to escape the temptation to disobey him when we're in the midst of a trial. Because we're very susceptible to that in our human nature, aren't we? Because if you look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what's the first word in 1 Corinthians 10, 14? Therefore, you've heard this a thousand times since I've been here, right? When you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Therefore means you look at everything that came before. So you go back to verse one of chapter 10, which we're not going to do. We'll just mention it briefly in a moment. Therefore, because of what we just read in chapter 10, verses one through 13, my beloved. And notice that Paul's being gentle and loving because he knows suffering is hard. Therefore, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. What's he talking about? Flee from idolatry. Idolatry is something we are particularly susceptible to during trials and hardships. We don't like what the Lord has allowed to come into our life. We either doubt him or we disobey his word. In the midst of that trial, we turn away from him. And what is that? Any moment that I'm not worshiping God, then I'm worshiping some idol. Whatever that may be. Comfort, ease, pleasure, you know, whatever, dot, dot, dot. Troubles, trials, suffering. What do they do? And this is very uncomfortable, but necessary. They expose our hearts and reveal what we're really worshiping. And how does it, how do trials do that? That's seen in how I respond to what God has sovereignly allowed. Now, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he catalogs Israel's sinful responses to all the hardships that they were facing in the desert as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land. If you look at that context of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, you see that the context is Israel traveling from Egypt to the promised land and all of their disobedience, even in the face of God's provision. Because when things got hard out there, they said, this is horrible. We want to go back to Egypt. Oh, we had it so good. Remember the cabbage and the fruit? Take us back. Uh, Never mind that we were enslaved in hard labor for 400 years. They weren't thinking about that. And then you see 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know, a lot of times we pull that out. That's called proof texting. When you take out a verse or a couple verses and you quote it and you interpret it to mean something that it never really meant in the context. In other words, it's like taking a house out of its neighborhood. But it's in the context of disobedience during Hardship. When the hard times came, they doubted God's care for them and they wanted independence. They wanted autonomy. And he gave them that independence 
and the result was catastrophic disaster. Deaths by the thousand. We want to unhinge, we want to unanchor ourselves from God because it's not going well. This is not my idea of the wonderful Christian life. Well, they weren't Christians in the Old Testament. Of the wonderful God-ordained promised people Israel. This isn't quite what I had signed up for. So we'll do our own thing. Especially in times of hardship, trial, suffering, it's important to remember Proverbs 4.23. This is a great life verse. This is the verse you should write down and tape up somewhere in your car at home or something. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from the heart flow the springs of life. You notice Life isn't about life. Life isn't about circumstances. Real life, according to God, is in my heart response to life. That's where the real issues are. Watch over your heart with all diligence, because out of the heart, the inner person, the mind, the thoughts, the loves, the desires, the passions, the cravings. At that place in the heart, that's where all the springs of life flow from. That's where what I want comes from. That's where what I'm really desiring, what I'm really chasing after. That's where it comes from. That's why I have to keep a real close watch over the nerve center, the center of my being. The headquarters of desire. So responding to God in seasons of hardship is a particularly susceptible time. So I have to be very careful to guard my heart, my attitude, my thoughts against sinful Responses. So think about that. The last hardship you had, the last trial, whether you sinned and you brought it on yourself or whether you were innocently uh, victimized or either in a mild sense or in a harsh sense by someone else's sin or situation. We should think, what was my response to that? What was what were my thoughts? And then how did I respond in my behavior, my actions to that? hardship that came we may be uncomfortable with the idea but God is quite often the author of calamity not sin not evil but calamity and though he's not the author of evil he reigns sovereignly over evil and more than that he even takes evil against us and he fashions it into our good. Scripture is very clear. There's a whole passage in Isaiah. We're not going to read the whole thing. And I have it written on your outline on the front. Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. Listen to what God says. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God besides me. I'm the one who forms light and I create darkness. And here we go. Fasten your seatbelts. Everybody in snug and tight. Okay, we're going to have a six flags moment, spiritually speaking. God says, I am the one who causes well-being and I am the one who creates calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So what conclusion do we draw? We could draw the conclusion that calamity is not evil. Hardship is not evil. Trials are not evil. Suffering is not evil. 
But in our limited human thinking, we tend to put those things together, right? Scripture is also clear. James chapter one. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word tempted there is the same word family in the language as trials. When I'm being in in James chapter one, verse two, he says, when you face trials of many kinds, when you face temptations, trials of many kinds. So here's a summary of everything that we've been saying so far. And I got this from my MacArthur study Bible at the footnote at James chapter one, verse two. Trials connotes trouble. Or something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, joy, and happiness in someone's life. The verb form of this word, trials, means to put someone or something to the test. And to put that person to the test with the purpose of discovering that person's nature or quality. God brings such tests in order to prove and increase the strength and quality of my faith and to demonstrate the validity of my faith. Every trial becomes a test of faith designed to strengthen me. If the believer fails the test by responding wrongly, that test then becomes a temptation, a solicitation to evil. You see? It's a test. I respond wrongly by disobeying God's word in the test and in my doubting. And so therefore, when I fail the test, it becomes a temptation because it's trying to lure me away from God. It's soliciting evil. That's why James says that happens in my own heart. I can't blame God for my response. James 1.12 says that if we endure trials, if we guard our hearts against sinful rebellion in hard times, we will be truly happy. James writes this. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved or passed the test by obeying God and trusting God, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed. Blessed is the man who endures through a trial. Blessed is an easy word. It means happy. 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 I can be happy if I stand firm in the Lord and I trust the Lord, even when things get extremely difficult. When I come out on the other side of that, the happiness I experience in the Lord has been strengthened. It's been deepened. It's been validated. You know, God allows trials to come into our lives to reveal to ourselves the quality of our faith. To validate it. Many times trials and hardships are simply the validation process. You can ask God, you know, God, do you validate? Well, yes, I do validate. It's like when you go to you go downtown, there's no parking, right? And you have an appointment and. Oh, we validate parking. You're like, yeah. God does that to validate our faith. So we already have seen here's some early application application in the middle of a sermon. Wow. How neat is that? OK. Strike while the iron's hot. Here's some application of what we're talking about. 
Calamity, tragedy, trials and hardships are not evil. Hardship is not necessarily an indication that God is displeased. Thirdly, the spiritual benefit in hardship comes in my humble acceptance and confidence and trust in God's sovereignty and in my belief that God has allowed this hardship for my good. It's the eternal perspective versus the temporal. Now, be careful. This is not the humanistic Kelly Clarkson interpretation of trials. What kill what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Isn't that her that's saying that right? I don't know. I don't listen to that kind of music, so I wouldn't know. So, mm-hmm. okay. There is that idea out in the world that says what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But Holy Scripture knows nothing of that. That's self-exalting. It's a Christless approach to suffering. In the biblical theology of troubles and suffering, it is faith in God, not faith in one's own strength. That is the goal of hardships and suffering. In fact, one of God's goals in our suffering and in our trials is to reveal to us our utter helplessness and need to depend upon him. Not to make us feel better about our own personal strength. It's the opposite. He's trying to bring us to the understanding of you can't live this life without me. One author says in the Bible illustrator of the Old Testament, he says innumerable and diversified are the immediate and proximate causes from which sorrows spring. The study of human suffering is unquestionably a melancholy one. And to some, looking at human suffering may appear not only gloomy, but it can appear useless. It is therefore above all things expedient that we labor to extract from suffering its due improvement. As a very important forming part of the dealings toward us by a God of mercy. A God who has engaged all things to work together for the good. Of his people. Translation, suffering, trials, hardship are not evil. They're quite often God's tool of sanctification. Another author says, remember that all discipline from God benefits or injures according to the spirit in which we receive it. So this is the issue that was on the Apostle Paul's heart concerning the Thessalonian Christians. He didn't want them to misinterpret the afflictions that he and they were suffering. So he was torn away from them by wicked, evil men. He had to flee for his life. Acts chapter 17. And he didn't want them to fall away from Christ because of their suffering. So if you look at verse three of first Thessalonians three, how'd you like that introduction? That was a good what? uh, Twenty five minute introduction. Now you get nervous, right? Okay. No need. First Thessalonians three, verse three, so that no one would be deceived. That's a better word. Your Bible may say disturbed, but it should have a little number one next to the word disturbed. Then you follow it into the middle of your Bible and it should say deceived. Why don't they just put deceived? I don't know. Some questions are mysterious. So that no one would be deceived or disturbed by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we have been destined for affliction. Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction for this reason. Circle highlight underline when I could endure it no longer. I also sent out Timothy to find out about your faith in your affliction 
because I was afraid that the tempter might have tempted you and then our labor would have been in vain. He was afraid that because they were facing such hardship and they were newer believers, that the things they were suffering would tempt them to turn away from Christ. Do we understand that temptation? If you say you do not, then I would question if you're even a living, breathing human being. Afflictions definitely tempt us to doubt what God is doing. So Paul was so concerned about this. Affliction tempts us to turn away from Christ. It can also tempt to weaken our faith. And specifically, these were new Christians. Just a few months. They weren't yet fully established in the faith. They were like that rocky soil in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. The rocky soil. What was the rocky soil? That'd be a great name. Rocky soil. What's your name? Rocky soil. Okay. Anyway, just a thought. The, the rocky soil was the person who professed faith in Christ, but he was so new to the faith. Uh, Jesus says when persecution and affliction came, he falls away. It can be very tempting. In affliction and suffering, the apostle was concerned with their spiritual well-being. Look at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 3. He sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. His concern, his supreme concern, was their spiritual well-being. He mentions it five times. Just glance super quickly because I'm going to abbreviate. But look at verse 5 to find out about your faith. Verse 6, heard good news about your faith. Verse 7, we were comforted about you through your faith. Verse 10, so that we can complete what is lacking in your faith. Five times in these ten verses, he wants to know about how they're doing in their faith. Now, here's a very important word. Faith here does not mean the faith, capital T. He's not talking about the body and the collection of gospel truth. He's not talking about doctrine. He's not talking about written scripture. When he says he was concerned about their faith, he's talking about the fact that he was concerned about their belief in the truth that they had heard. His concern was their belief in their holding to holding in conviction to what they had been taught and received from him at the beginning of his time there. Their belief in Christ was being challenged by their difficult circumstances. And in the face of hindrance and opposition, would they still believe? How are they interpreting the bad things that are happening to them? Were they tempted to turn away from Christ because following him had now become very difficult? Chapter one, he praises them for being a model church, but they're still young in the faith. Now they're being tested by affliction and they needed further guidance towards spiritual maturity. Look at verse 10. He says so that we could complete what is lacking in your faith. In other words, you've only been in the faith a short time. There's still a lot you need to learn. Verse 13 of chapter three, so that the Lord may establish your hearts. Chapter four, verse one, we want to exhort you to excel still more. Chapter 4, verse 10, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Even the best Christians face times of testing when their faith is challenged. Will they hold on to their faith and belief in Christ when that belief is severely tested? 
by trials, by hardships, by suffering, or can you hear a bell ring? Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. In our world, we may not connect with hardships and suffering, but perhaps they were being tempted because of worldliness, love of comfort, love of ease, apathy, laziness often tests our faith. Our obedience is what he's talking about. Our application, putting into practice what we know of spiritual things. Will their tests become a solicitation to temptation? We all need to be exhorted to excel still more. In every time of testing, each of us has a choice to make. Will I trust in God and be strengthened in my faith? Or will I turn away from God in doubt and fear and pursue my own independence? It's a choice. Look at Timothy's mission. What was Timothy's mission back to the Thessalonians? Verse 2. To strengthen and encourage you in your faith. That word strengthen. He was told he needed to do two things for them. Two things we should be doing for each other here. All right. Body life among Christians in the local church. Are you engaged in strengthening others here? Are you engaged in encouraging others here? Well, what do these words mean? To strengthen means to support or to buttress something with the intent of establishing it. He's talking about setting or laying a firm foundation in sound doctrine. Knowing about all that God has revealed in Scripture. In other words, faith cannot be strong without knowledge and understanding of the truth. Are you involved in strengthening one another? But he says that's not the only thing. Timothy will be encouraging you. That's a really interesting word. That word encourage is the same root word from which we get the word for Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. This is a form of that word paraclesia. It's the same thing. Comfort or comforter to encourage. To call near or to come alongside. It's tremendous. If people, when someone's in crisis, when someone's in hardship, when someone's in trial, when someone's suffering, we come alongside them. We draw them near. We in, it means to invoke, to invite, to console. But not just, we don't just pat them on the back and you, you help me finish this sentence. There, there, everything will be. Yeah, there, there, everything will be all right. They're not going to feed you to the lions until next week. There, there. I mean, I mean, I, that's being silly, but right. It gives people the impression that God's going to take this trial away from you right away. That everything's going to be OK. To encourage, to come alongside, to console, to comfort. We've got to finish it. In order to motivate a person to live in ways pleasing to God. In order to motivate a brother or sister in Christ to live in ways that are pleasing to God. To apply the doctrine that has been learned into daily living. Translation. When someone is in a hardship, in a trial or suffering, they're going to be tempted to doubt 
God's faithfulness and God's love. They may be even tempted to walk away from the faith. To encourage them means I come alongside them and encourage them to continue to obey God and to trust God and to have confidence in God. The Thessalonians needed both strengthening and encouragement. We need both, especially when facing severely difficult situations. It's really the heartbeat of the care commission. It should be. It's the philosophy. Well, I'm not saying it's not. That sounded bad. Uh, I'm not saying, it. Laura, you're okay. Uh, the, the philosophy or the mindset behind caring and encouraging people. Where's Benjamin? I don't see Benny. Son of encouragement, Barnabas. That's what this is all about. We need encouragement. We need others to come alongside us, to comfort us, to console us, to motivate us, to respond to difficult situations in ways that are pleasing to God. Paul told the Ephesians, speak the truth in love, right? There must be that divine balance of truth and love. I heard this a long, long time ago, but I like it. Because love without truth is only sentiment. And truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is only sentiment. And truth without love is brutality. There has to be both. There must be a divine balance between exhorting and helping people in crisis. Paul later admonished Timothy in Timothy's calling as a pastor. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Preach the word, rebuke, reprove, exhort. And then he says, with great patience, with great patience. Second Timothy four. At all times, but especially in times of crisis, we have to reach out to help each other. We can't shy away from brothers and sisters in Christ because they're in crisis and they're in hardship. We have to do all we can to make sure that they're established in sound doctrine. They know what the scriptures say about their situation. We need to make sure that they're thinking the right thoughts. But we have to do that with encouragement. We come alongside one another to console, to comfort, to show them how they can respond to this difficult situation in a way that pleases God. Many times we're tempted just to come alongside them to help them try to escape the problem. Which isn't necessarily wrong in itself, but it may not be God's will for them to escape the problem at this time. That's not for me to decide. My concern needs to be Proverbs 4.23. The real issue of life is how are you responding to this problem? Let me encourage you. God has not abandoned you. This doesn't mean necessarily God's not happy with you. It's not a sign that God's not at work. In fact, brother, I would tell you the exact opposite. It's most likely a sign that God is at work. Even when a brother or sister gets caught in a sin, I can look them in the eyes and tell them, this is a good thing. You got caught because God loves you. If God didn't care about you, he would have just let you go your own way forever. So a difficulty, a trial, suffering, hardship is not a sign that God's not there. For the believer, it's a sign that he definitely is there. Paul sent Timothy back to the Thessalonians. Verse 3, he says, so that they would not be disturbed by these afflictions. Like I said, a better word there would be the word deceived by these afflictions. Now, disturbs a very interesting word here. Uh, 
Originally, it meant some of you are going to like this. Originally, it was used of a dog to refer to a dog who's wagging its tail. A little bit of housekeeping before I forget. I have that dog food in my car. I forgot. Don't leave. Okay. I don't have a dog. Why do I have dog food? I don't know. That's why I'm giving it away. Okay. It was used to refer to a dog wagging its tail. But through the years, it changed its meaning a little bit. It came to mean to allure, to fascinate, to flatter or beguile. Because usually when a dog's wagging his tail, it's trying to attract your attention because it wants something. Ooh, look at me. I'm so cute. I want something. Look. Trying to, have you ever been beguiled by a dog? Yeah. Little doggy. You guys have, what, eight? Something like that. Socks. No, I'm just kidding. You brought that dog to work that day. And I'm not even. A, I said, oh, I'm not. A, I'm not really a dog. But oh, look. Oh, it's okay. Trying to beguile me, trying to deceive me with its cute little wagging of the tail. Before it rips my face off. And I get, well, that happened to me once with a dachshund. Long story. Yeah. A better word would be deceived here. So when a dog wags its tail, it's trying to draw attention to itself. It wants something. So the word disturbed or deceive is referring to a person who tried to flatter or beguile other people. So what Paul is saying here is your sufferings, your affliction can be beguiling, can be deceptive because your troubles can make you vulnerable to being lured away from Christ because it's so severe and it's so hard. Look at verses three and four. Paul uses the word we. He says we are destined for affliction. Uh, when uh, he says when we were with you, we kept telling you that we were going to suffer affliction. Who is we? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about himself, Timothy and Silas? Is he talking about the Thessalonians? The answer is yes. He's talking about all of them. All of them. He says we were destined For this, we were destined for affliction. Believers are destined for troubles. Believers are destined for affliction. It's part of the package of being a disciple. And we need to know that up front. God loves you and he's a wonderful plan of suffering for your life. Where do I sign up? But I do think we do a disservice to people when we're trying to evangelize and we're not honest with them about the difficulties of being a disciple. All followers of Jesus Christ are destined for affliction. Paul had already exhorted Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, he told him, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus promised all of us in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And I love what Peter wrote to all of us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And he really throws cold water in our face. He tells us something we need to hear. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, and you're acting like some strange thing was happening to you. Many Christians are surprised or shocked or caught off guard when they see the unbelieving world growing more and more hostile toward Christianity. We hear more and more hateful, vitriolic accusations tossed out against Christians and the Lord every day. Many Christians just fail to or refuse to see the writing on the wall. 
Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days, difficult times will come. I think Christians are surprised because these Christians are friends with the world. And they mistakenly think that the world is their friend. And they forget what James exhorted in James chapter 4. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That, James says, is adultery. It's very popular practice in the church today to accommodate the unbeliever, to make the church attractive and acceptable to the unbeliever, to market the church as seeker friendly or emergent. And there's a desire for the church to be culturally relevant, to be accepted by the world. If we can just show the world how loving we are, how accepting we are, then we can attract the world to the faith. But that's backwards. That's the church bending to the world, a world under the influence of the evil one. Now, the Apostle Peter confessed to Jesus. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? A lot of people don't understand Jesus' answer. Jesus looked at Peter and he said to him and the other disciples on the rock of the truth that you just said upon the rock of the truth that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church and I'm going to literally interpret this for you. I will build my church and even the power of death will not be able to stop my church. The church is on the offense and the world will not be able to stop us. But for some reason, we're living as if we're on the defense and we need to try to make the world and the culture love us and accept us. We got it backwards. The church is not supposed to be wooing the culture. The church is commanded by Christ to call the culture to repentance and to belief in Christ as the only way, truth and life. Paul tells these Thessalonians, I told you when I was with you that this was going to happen. Uh, I warned you. I tried to prepare you. I wanted you to be ready beforehand. Why would he want to warn them beforehand? He prepared them beforehand so that they would understand that their afflictions were part of God's sovereign plan for them. Their trials were not meaningless. Their hardships were not useless. They were a sanctifying tool in the hands of God. I'm sure Paul told them or he was thinking about what Jesus told him. He had a face to face meeting with Jesus in Acts chapter nine. And Jesus said, you will suffer many things, Paul, for my name. He wanted them to be encouraged by his sufferings. He wanted them to be encouraged, not discouraged. These are the two main things he wanted them not to think. Don't think that our troubles mean God's plan is not working out. It definitely is. Because he got such a great report, didn't he, about their faith? They were standing firm. They were facing affliction and trials and hardship. They weren't falling away from the faith. But just think if they had interpreted their troubles to mean that God's not at work here. Oops, we got resistance. We got opposition. This is really hard. So that must mean God's not in this. I'm out of here. Just popped into my head and I might get in trouble, but maybe not. That's the attitude that even a lot of Christians take about marriage. Ooh, this is a lot harder than I thought. Uh, I'm out of here. Just because there's opposition, just because it's hard, just because it's difficult, just because there's tears and trials. That doesn't mean that God's not in it. 
Number two, he says, don't think that our troubles mean that God is displeased with you. He certainly is not. Paul says. From the context, we know that their afflictions. Indicated three things. Their afflictions indicated was were an indication of Satan's opposition. He already mentioned that. Hey, this is the real deal. So Satan's trying to stop it. The presence of opposition and hindrances should encourage you to the fact that you're doing the right thing. You're on the right track. It was also an indication of the sinner's genuine salvation. A lot of these problems wouldn't exist if you weren't the target of opposition. This is proof that your salvation is real. It was also an indication of their sanctification. That their trials, their afflictions were a tool, if they would accept it, if they would humbly submit before it, that God was at work. They had a beautiful response to their trials. Their faith increasing, their love for the apostle and the others increased. They wanted to see them as much as the apostles wanted to see them. Then Paul's very careful in verse 9 to give all the glory and the praise to God for their faith, not to give them praise for their faith. They were standing firm because God was establishing them and holding them. And then what was Paul going to do from here on out? Verse 10. He's going to commit himself to prayer. Verse 10. Night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. So they're going to pray. And we're going to complete what is lacking in your faith. There's still work to be done. We see here in our passage today ten elements or seven elements of what our attitude should be for the spiritual well-being of others in our church. So measure yourself. These are on your outline. Something for you to think about. Paul demonstrated Christian affection and desire for fellowship with other believers. He sacrificed for them. He showed them compassion. He took on a protective role to protect them from falling away during affliction. He found delight and joy in their spiritual progress. Do you find delight and joy in the spiritual progress of others? And he was grateful to God for their spiritual growth. And then what? Verse 10, once again, he entered into intercessory prayer on their behalf. Fervently and earnestly. Not merely occasionally. So we should measure our performance in church life by these standards. Do these seven qualities of Paul describe our attitudes and actions toward each other here in our own church? We need to ask ourselves, where do we need to improve and what specific steps will we take to make that improvement? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement today. I know there are some that struggle, some that are struggling even today in very difficult situations. Perhaps some have even struggled or suffered for their faith, but we definitely know what it's like to endure hardships and trials, unexpected tragedy. And the real true test in those times, Father, we know, is what will our response be? Father, we pray for your grace in our lives to endure through hardships and testings, even through times of spiritual dullness and apathy and laziness. We just pray that you would just cleanse our hearts and you would just uh, come after us and restore us. Uh, help us to understand that hardships and trials, even suffering, are quite often a part of your divine plan and they're not evil and they're not to be wholly hated and, and avoided and despised because often 
you do a tremendous amount of shaping and molding and discipling through difficult times and, and dark seasons. So, Father, teach us to praise you, not just in the good times, but to praise you, maybe even more during the hard times. Because we know that you're at work wielding the scalpel of the word of the scriptures, as Hebrews 4 tells us, to accomplish all your good works in us. So we give you all the praise and the glory and our gratitude for all the good gifts you give us and for all the spiritual growth and the deepening of our faith. It's because of your divine hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today. It's good to see you. Hope you were encouraged. Don't forget we have some snacks out here today, a uh, time of fellowship, so please join us.